Well, friends, who is your neighbor? Who is, who are your neighbors? Next door, two doors down, three doors down, four doors down. Some of you, that's like six miles away. Who are your neighbors? You know, what do they do for work? What do they do for fun? What are their hobbies? What do they like to do in their free time? What is their life like? Where do your neighbors find hope in this world? What burdens the hearts of those who live around you? And would they be able to answer those same questions about you? And too often as Christians, we see those that live around us as distant, even when they're yards away. As distant or or too difficult to really know, to really get to know in depth, to care for or to love. It seems too much work for us sometimes. Maybe we're fearful. Maybe, just being honest, we're irritated. Maybe we ourselves are too difficult or too busy to really invest or to engage. But my question for you today is, is that the heart of Jesus? Is that the heart of Jesus? What does Jesus Christ Dead, buried, raised, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, this Jesus. What does this Jesus say about the people that live in this valley, in this city, in the surrounding counties? What does Jesus say about your neighbors? And how does it shape, change everything about your lives alongside of them? Does it? Should it? That's what our text really gets at today. We are coming today in Acts 18 to the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. We're going to look and begin to look at the third missionary journey in just a few weeks. But today we come to the conclusion of his second missionary journey that really takes place. This is Jesus' mission really to the Gentile peoples from the years of A.D. 50 to A.D. 53. And we see in those four years of 50 to 53 that Paul's journeys take him some 3,000 miles by land and by sea. Going to city after city after city. And really, it's marked by trouble and opposition after trouble and opposition over and over again. But the main thing we see, the main truth, the main spiritual truth that we see this entire time that Paul is going these 3,000 miles is this. Is that Jesus will provide every single step of the way. And we're going to see that culminate, climax, reach its peak 
today in our text. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab that pew Bible there in front of you. And Acts 18 is found on page 872. Maybe you left your Bible at home or you don't even have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some that we'd love to give you on the table in the foyer out there. You can grab one today on your way out. But let's look at Acts chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. We're not going to have a lot of time to get into verses 18 through 21 today, but we're going to be a little bit of an overlap. So I'll read that whole section today, and we'll look at it again next week and really get into it. Friends, as I read these 21 verses, let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord to us today from Acts 18, 1 through 21. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he, he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galeo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galeo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And in Syncrae he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. So the main gist of this whole passage, the main focus of of today's text really takes place there in kind of the middle. And so we're going to look at, there's really 
two different sections with kind of this middle peak moment that I'm going to spend an entire point on this morning. I was, I'll be honest with you, I was tempted to just preach on verses 9 and 10. But I want to get the whole breadth of where we're going this morning and what's happening in this chapter. But that's going to really be the main focus. So, so there's going to be really three points with the middle point being a, a kind of a zeroing in. So point one is the ups and downs of faithfulness. The ups and downs of faithfulness. We see this in verses 1 through 8. The ups and downs of faithfulness. Then in verses 9 and 10 we see the word of Christ. The word of Christ and just those two verses, 9 and 10. And then finally in the last section, in verses 11 through 21, we find the fruit of promise. The fruit of promise. So we have the ups and downs of faithfulness, the word of Christ, and the fruit of promise. No alliteration today, no cutesy points. We're just going to get at the text, all right? All right. So as we do, my prayer for us this morning is that we ourselves... Would be like Paul here. Now I realize that we can never fully be like Paul. He was a specific man that was for a specific time and he was equipped in a specific way. But I want us as Christians to follow his example here and not grow lazy or distracted in this kingdom life. That's my prayer for us this morning. That instead, because we are empowered by Jesus, we have received his spirit, that we would press into those around us to see Christ's kingdom built here and now. That is my prayer. So let's, let's, let's look at that then as we look at point one, the ups and downs of faithfulness. In this first section here in verses one through eight, we find Paul facing many of the things that we see Christians face in, in our life as we live it in, in even today's world. So we see that Paul now has left Athens, all right? So, so we, he leaves Athens. We looked at this last week, and we're not really told how things go in Athens. Like many of the cities that Paul is in, he's preaching the gospel, and, and he often receives this pushback, and he's run out of the city. But we hear of things going somewhat well. There seems to be some success of ministry, though Paul has never really allowed to stay and see the church established and grown. But here in Athens, it's completely different. He leaves, you see, at the end of, of 17, and, and there's no report on if things go well or not, if they end up receiving his testimony to Jesus. So he leaves, and he comes to the city of Corinth. Now, many of you are familiar with the city of Corinth. We have two letters that are written to the church in Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians. We have those in our Bibles. Many scholars agree and believe that there's actually a third and fourth letter that was not preserved for whatever reason. Uh, but we have here the first and second letters to this church in Corinth. And this is, this is Paul's first trip there. He's going to this city. But it is a city that is notoriously wicked. It is a city that is notoriously greedy, bent on themselves and, and pleasure for themselves. And, and you get this idea even as the early church there in Corinth is wrestling through many of the issues that they are in the book of 1 Corinthians. You read this. This is not the only hill that Paul has to climb here, though. Paul himself, as a man on a mission, has been beaten. He has been arrested. He has been stoned. He has been run out of city after city. And he shows up in Corinth alone. He arrives in Corinth with this series of encouragements and discouragements, of ups and downs. Let's first just think about some of the encouragements we see here in these first eight verses. The first one 
it's right in our face, is providential friendships. These providential friendships that, that Paul receives. You see there, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they eventually become a power couple, right? In the book of Acts, they're going to do some great and, and really awesome things. But here we're just introduced to them as, as these folks who have had to flee Rome, which is in Italy, if you didn't know that. Okay, So they have to flee there. Because Claudius, we think many scholars believe in, in AD 49, he runs the Jews out particularly because, get this, there were some Jews who were saying that this guy Jesus from Nazareth was the Christ. And they were causing an uproar. Paul's not the only one doing this. And so Claudius runs all of the Jews out of Rome because he's tired of dealing with the conflict that comes with Jesus pressing in on Judaism. And so it seems that Aquila and Priscilla are some of those early believers that have to flee and they come to the city of Corinth. And Paul found, it's literally what it says there in the text, and he found a Jew named Aquila. And so we see some, some commonality here between them. First of all, Aquila and Priscilla, they, they have a Jewish background just like Paul does. Secondly, they're, they're Roman citizens just like Paul is. And finally, they do the same thing for work. This is the first time we read that Paul doesn't just ride around expecting people to give him money, but he also uses his hands. He's a tent maker, which is a very interesting job considering that tents were often made out of animal hides. And Paul is, historically, grew up Jewish. To handle dead animals in their hides would have been something that was seen as unclean. But Paul, in his following of Jesus, seems to have now found something that he's good at and that he has the freedom to take up in building tents. And so he does. And so he finds this couple there who do the same thing and they get along with each other swimmingly. And so he stays with them, our text says. And that's not all. As we jump into verse 5, we find that Silas and Timothy finally return back. You remember when Paul got to Athens, he, he sent the party that brought him there back to go get Silas and Timothy. And we're not told if they make it to Athens or not, but at some point it seems that Paul has sent now Silas and Timothy over to Macedonia. And they've now come back from Macedonia to join Paul on his journey. And we read... More than likely in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, that when they come, they bring gifts, financial support from the Macedonian church to Paul to help him along. We see here, like I said, these providential friendships and how God has been providing for Paul each step of the way. We see here the value of Christian friendship, don't we? This was a gift to Paul and the others in these harsh and uncertain times. And I don't want you to miss the blessing that Luke brings about here in mentioning all of these people. Because he gives us this vision, this sense of what friendships should look like. Even for us. It went beyond a mere spiritual connection. It flowed into their lives together. They weren't just, oh, we're Christian brothers and sisters. But they actually were doing life together. We need more than mere list of things to do, don't we? We need fellowship and friendship like this. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. 
And this is part of the longing of your own heart, is that you wish you had these kind of relationships. You wish you had the kind of relationships that you see borne out in this assembly, even this morning. This is one of the great blessings of following Christ, is when you get Jesus, you get his people for good and for bad. And this is what a local church is to be. Our common strength, born out of our love for Christ and for each other. It's been one of the greatest blessings in being a pastor and just seeing how God providentially brings new friends into the life of our church, particularly as we as a church have needs and God answers those needs through bringing people to be a part of this gathering. I I don't think that I'm being hyperbolic when I say this, but every time, at least in my time here as the pastor of this church, that we have prayed and asked God to bring people to our church, He has. Whether that be families, whether that be senior adults, whether that be people who work in a secular job force, whether that be people who are in this neighborhood, God has been faithful. Because this is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Him, is to also be a part of His people. And so I ask you a few questions as we move on to another encouragement is this. How are you taking up the friendships that God has put in your life as a means to encourage you, to propel you forward in following Jesus? And then how are you giving your life to helping others follow Jesus more? This is what discipling is. How has God given you opportunities to speak into the life of others? Do you seek to be an encouragement? Let's continue on and look at another encouragement. We see it here in 7 and 8. We'll come back to the discouragement he faces in 5 and 6 in just a minute. But Luke only notes here in 7 and 8 two converts from his ministry in Corinth. Now there's many more, but he notes two, and he notes these two in particular. We first have Titius Justus. If Paul moves here to ministry, okay, so he leaves the Jewish synagogue. We'll look at that in a second. But when he leaves, where does he go? He just goes right next door. And he goes next door to this guy who is a Gentile, right? We know this because of his Greek name. But he happens to live right next door to the synagogue, which is a wonderful ministry opportunity. And he goes there, and we see the the beginnings of the Corinth church begin to, to flourish. It begins to grow. Then we're welcomed in this guy named Crispus. He's a ruler of the synagogue, which means he would have been a Jew. He's a man of means. And so we see God beginning at this strategic partnership with this Gentile and this Jew in the city of Corinth as this new church is started. And we see purely in these two men a reflection of what the church is, as Paul writes about later in Ephesians, that In the church, God takes Jew and Gentile and in the place of the two creates one new man. And this is the mystery, Paul says, that has been hidden for generations. This mystery is being revealed in this city. That Paul would go and he would preach the gospel. And those from God's chosen people and those from God's new chosen peoples would come together. And create a church. And so a church is planted here in Corinth. 
It shows the establishment of unity. Many heard, we go on to read there, many heard and believed and were baptized. We see a new gathering begin, as we've seen so many times before. And this is what we want to be about as well. Just very practically speaking, this is the kind of ministry that we want to see happen. This is why we care so much about partnerships with other churches. This is why, as the pastors, we're thinking through some of these issues and and who we partner with and what does partnership look like. This is why, in our 2022 budget, we have that giant line item for miscellaneous missions that, that is so much larger. And David mentioned this last week. And I'm thankful he did um, because it means he's catching the vision too. Uh, but, but I've told our pastors that, that what I want in the next 25 years for our church is that 50% of our church's budget would go to missions, would go to serving outside of this body. Because this is what we want to see happen. We want to see new churches planted. We want to see established churches revitalized. We will see men and women equipped to start ministries to care for those in need around our city and around the world. This is what it is about. But it's not just encouragements that Paul faces here. There are some discouragements as well. It wasn't all success. In fact, things were really difficult. You see, first, I mentioned this a second ago, that that Paul shows up in his inadequacy. In his inadequacy, you see this, Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians. Let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 5. This is what he says. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, Paul notes his inadequacy as he shows up in Corinth. And that inadequacy in Paul is met with disappointment in his preaching, as it has been many other times for him. Not everything has been a success. Many times Paul would show up in different cities, he would preach, and the Jews would get so angry he would have to leave. The discouragement and the disappointment that came from that and the rejection. The rejection is at the heart of it. You see this back in verses 5 and 6. We pick up halfway through verse 5. Paul was occupied with the word, meaning the gospel, the word of God, testifying, this is it, that the, to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, that their long-awaited Messiah was, in fact, Jesus Christ. And when they opposed and reviled him, they didn't just push back, but they also hated him. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. We see him playing out what Jesus told his early followers in Luke 10, that when they would go to a city and the city would not receive them, that they would shake the dust off of their feet. Paul is doing very much the same thing. Your your robe tended to get dusty when you walked into these cities in this very arid climate. And so Paul shakes off the dust. He says, your blood be on your own heads since you're not going to allow the blood of Christ to take your guilt. Then it's on you. 
It's this reality. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the reality that you have to understand. There are only two people who can pay for your rebellion and your sin against God. It's either you or it is Christ. Those are the two options. And so Paul says, if you're not going to receive your Messiah, then your blood is on your own head. He says here that I will no longer go to the Jews, but I will go to the Gentiles. Now, we see that as soon as he gets to Ephesus, he, he goes right back to the synagogue. So, so this, this saying here is not, I'm going to forever only go to the Gentiles, but, but right now, while I'm in Corinth, I'm done trying to deal with you hard-headed, hard-hearted Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's what he does. And so, friends, in the face of such discouragement, even for us, as we face discouragement ourselves, what promise then do we have that we should continue on? What promise does Paul have that he should keep going? Is he to go just like he has done in every other city and now split town? Because he knows what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming because it's happened over and over and over again. That as he preaches the gospel, the Jews hear about it, they grow angry, and they come at him. We read about this just a little while later in verse 12. The Jews made a united attack. Same thing that's happened over and over and over again. So what is Paul to do in the face of a lack of success here? Well, that's what we find really in verses 9 and 10. Let's zoom in on those two verses and think about them really for really the rest of the time as we see the outworking of those in the final section. It's in the face of all of these trials and triumphs that Jesus steps in in a particularly helpful way. So we see point to the word of Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, we've seen visions a lot, haven't we? Some of us are left asking, well, Lord, when, when do I get my vision? We receive these visions throughout the book that are helpful because they play a significant role in helping the mission go forward. And so we have this one here in Acts 18, 9 and 10. Let me read to us again. And let me just point this out. It does say, and the Lord, I've made this clear every time we've come to this in the book of Acts, that the Lord there in the Greek is the word for master, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, but Lord as in Master. This is Jesus who's now intervening from the throne and gives Paul a vision and speaks to him. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This vision really has five parts to it. So you see why I was tempted to just preach a whole sermon on just these two verses. Because there's five parts to these words from Christ. And I'm just going to kind of go through them. And here's, here's kind of my application for you or my recommendation for you is to go back this week Read 9 and 10 as many times as you can. Try to memorize these verses because there are really five parts to it that are so deep. And we're going to look at these for the rest of the time. Okay, here they are, these five parts. The first two are commands and the second three or the last three are promises. Okay, so let's look at these two commands 
that Jesus himself gives Paul. Command number one, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He addresses the fear. Now, we can infer here, as I think that we should, that Paul's probably afraid. He's facing fears. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, isn't it? That I was amongst you with much weakness and trembling. Where does fear come from? We find so often that fear creeps in our lives under two circumstances. Number one, we have fear when our future is uncertain. The future makes us fearful when we don't know what's going to happen. For Paul, his future was uncertain here. It wasn't looking painless because he experienced so much pain before over these things. But fear also creeps in in forgetting. So the future and the forgetting. And so that gets at the way we kill fear then. We can't kill fear by knowing the future, at least not the immediate future. We do know the eternal future. One of the main ways we kill our fear here, and this is what Jesus does, it is through remembering who he is. Friends, I know many of you come this morning and in varying degrees show up with fear. Maybe it's fear over the state of your children. Maybe it's fear over the state of your work. Maybe you're fearful about what the rest of your life is going to look like. But the good news here that Paul receives, that we can take up to kill our own fear, is by remembering who his Savior is. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why? Because I'm Jesus. I'm sitting here on the throne. I died and I rose again and I ascended so that I may rule over all of creation. Why should you not be afraid? Because I've done it. And I'm bearing the fruit of my work. This is my kingdom. So Paul, do not be afraid. Here's the question I have for myself, because I'm afraid. Is, is this enough for me? Is this enough to squash my fears? Come back to that. Command number two, keep on preaching. Keep on a preaching and do not be silent. Well, if anyone had reason to let up at this point, Paul deserved a vacation, Right? Paul deserves some respite. He deserves some time away. He needs to do some self-care, get on a personal retreat. But Jesus says, no. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. So you just keep going. You just keep doing what I've told you to do. Just keep preaching. Just keep speaking. Speaking the word, testifying that I am who I said that I am. And I will do what I said I will do. The mission is simple for Paul, but it's hard. It's simple, just keep saying it, but you know what it might bring. Just keep going. Jesus puts it plainly, when difficult, painful, slow, and troubled in our lives, just keep declaring the goodness of Christ. But what do we see here? As we roll out of those two commands, we see a biblical truth. Okay, and you can test this. Go test it. 
that throughout God's word, all of his commands are couched, I mean by couched, they find a nice, comfortable place in the promises of God. That God does not command us to things without giving us the promise of himself. It's exactly what we see in these three promises that Paul receives in this vision. Number one, Jesus' presence. So these promises are three Ps, okay? So that may be helpful for you. Promise number one, Jesus' presence. See that God was with Paul. He's with Paul in the Holy Spirit that has come upon Paul and dwells inside of him. He's with Paul in the Father's moving and preparing for him. We're going to see more of this in just a minute. And finally, God is with Paul in Christ himself, giving his kingly mediation and mission. The reality is whether Paul felt it or not, and we're, I'm sure that he at times did not feel the presence of Jesus with him in the mission. It doesn't matter. Jesus is there. Right? There's the popular phrase now, facts don't care about your feelings, which I think can be helpful at times. But there's also a reality here that Jesus' presence doesn't care about your feelings either. Jesus is present whether you feel him or not, Paul. I am with you. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. I am with you. And what does Jesus' presence bring with it? Promise number two, Jesus' protection. And this is weird. This is a weird one here, okay? Let's just call it what it is. It's weird because Paul's been through the ringer. What are we talking about Jesus' protection? Dude got stoned, right? He gets stoned in Lystra. He gets beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. So much for protection. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not a liar here. He's not talking about not being hurt. He's speaking about holding Paul, keeping him, sustaining him, seeing him through. There's these two parts then. The fact that Jesus says this means, number one, that trouble will come. That heartache and difficulty will come. But the promise of the thing is that deliverance will follow. Deliverance will follow. And we see this each step of the way until Paul's last day. That Jesus delivers him. We see this borne out then throughout the rest of of the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks is how Jesus does protect Paul in all of his journeys. But there's one final promise. It's the third P. It's Jesus' people. His people. We see that Jesus is not just with him. We see that Jesus is not just over him but that Jesus has gone before him. We see that Jesus has people in this city. This is what Jesus himself has told us. We see this in John's gospel in multiple places. But one, John 10, 16, Jesus has already promised that there were sheep of a different fold and that he would go out and get those sheep. And we see now the fruit of that, that he's getting those sheep with his apostles and with his disciples as they're going out. 
But more clearly, we see this in Jesus' words in John 6.37. Jesus says that all, which means all, every single one of them, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There is not one of Jesus' people that will be lost. And so, friends, my question for you then is, what is Jesus' word worth to you? If you're here today and you're you're not a Christian, there may not seem like very much power in the words of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're despairing. You're questioning, what is going on in my life? I feel like there's no direction. There's no goodness. There's no fruit being born. The the beauty is, is slim to none. Do you believe a word from the Savior's mouth can do you any good? Children. Children, what is the word of Jesus worth to you? Has your heart heard the words of Jesus? And he says, come to me. And he says, find your rest in me. Find your hope, your salvation, your freedom in me. Well, what does it do to Paul? What do the words of Jesus do to Paul? This is what we find in our final point. Point three, the fruit of promise. We see this in verses 11 through 21. In this final section, we see these words, these words of Christ, these five things Jesus says, we see them put to the test almost immediately, in the text at least. First, we see that the Jews have a concentrated attack against Paul, as they have in every single place. So Paul is brought before the tribunal. This would be a a Gentile tribunal, right? So, So the Jews grab Paul, they drag him before this guy, Galeo, and, and they present him there and they say, listen, this is what this guy's doing. He's teaching us to worship contrary to the law, meaning the Jewish law, right? He, this is, you realize this is, this is just Christianity that Paul is teaching. That worshiping God has transitioned from worshiping through the sacrifice of lambs to now worshiping through the Lamb of God. So they bring this, and it is. It's a matter of religion. This is what the guy says. He says, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Look back at what he says. I love how he says it here in verse 15. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, right? He's getting said, they're talking about this name, this Jesus, this Jesus. It's just somebody's name. I don't know anything about this Jesus that you're talking about and these words that you're using. Your own law and how you worship, and this. I don't want anything to do with that. Get out of here. So he says 16, and he drove them from the tribunal. Friends, you notice though what it it says about Paul in this situation. And this really gets at the fruit of this promise that Jesus makes. Back in 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he doesn't even get to talk. He doesn't even get to make a defense for himself. He doesn't even have to. The sovereign Christ is so involved in directing the steps 
and keeping Paul and watching over him and making a way that Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. We're reminded of Exodus 14, 14. God's always made these promises to his people. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so he is. And so we see Jesus keep his promises. And the final section then is bookended then by these two surprising statements. And I don't want you to miss them. Look at verse 11 and then verse 18. I'm going to read them both. Verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This comes right after his promise. Jesus' promise. And then jump down to 18. After this, after this tribunal, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. Don't miss what Luke's saying here. That this man who had been sent on the mission of Christ to go to the Gentiles, preaching to his own people first and then preaching to those who were following pagan ways and after he has faced just situation after situation after situation where he's been driven out of the cities. He receives these promises from God. And what does he do in Corinth? He stays. He stays in the city. For some 18 months, he is there. Does Jesus keep his word to Paul? <laughs> By all means, he does. So that Paul is not driven out. He is not having to be hidden away and leaving in the shadows of the night. It's there in Corinth that Paul really seeks to strengthen this little church that's begun in this wicked city. It's there that many scholars believe that Paul writes his two letters to the church in Thessalonica. It's there that he labors among them. But the question remains for us. Can we take these promises up for ourselves? This is something we thought about a lot in the book of Acts. Is that Acts is a story. It is historical narrative. It is telling us what Jesus did in the early days of his church. And so it is wrong for us to read everything in Acts and say, well, that must be true for today too. That's not how God intends us to read this narrative. And yet... There are times in this book when the truths held out are truths that are then borne out through the rest of the Bible and lay claim to our own lives. And so friends, let me close by meditating today on the precious promises of God and the compelling commands that he gives us. This would be a sub-point, point four, conclusion, whatever you want to call it. Let's think about those three promises. Number one, Jesus' presence. Do we get it? Do we get Jesus' presence? I am with you? Do we get that? What, what Jesus gave to Paul, do we get it today? Well, let's consider Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is Jesus' own words at the end of Matthew's gospel. 
And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Friends, the king is ever present, ever fighting for his people as we are gathered around his presence. What about Jesus' protection? Some of y'all are like, uh-oh. Pastor Adam's getting into some prosperity stuff. Jesus, Jesus, is Jesus going to protect us? Do we pray for a hedge of protection around us? Right? That's something that always confused me for so long. What, what is the hedge of protection? Where, where do we get this language? Does Jesus protect his people? Well, let's consider 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Does Jesus protect his people? Friends, the reality that we see borne out in the New Testament and we see borne out in the lives of God's people today is that yes, the king may allow us to become battle-beaten, but in the end, he is victorious. And the war belongs to him. But what about his people? What about Jesus' people? This is why I asked those questions at the beginning. Does Jesus have people in this city? Brothers and sisters, I want you to ask yourself that question. Does Jesus have people in this city? And by that particularly, I mean, does Jesus have people in the city that are not yet his? And if so, what do we do about it? Matthew 16, 18 Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church. Friends, do not miss this truth that the king is still building his kingdom. And he has a great multitude, a great multitude, more than any man could number. And they are in his eyes and they are on his heart. And so, we take up these promises. We take them up for ourselves. To strengthen us. Like ammo for the commands. Should we be afraid? Does Jesus tell us not to be afraid? Well, yes. In 2 Timothy 1, he says that I have not given you a spirit of fear. This is what we see born out in the Psalms. Tonight at prayer service, we're going to start singing some of the Psalms together. We're going to start with Psalm 1. We're going to sing it together tonight because this is a truth that's born out that we can all grow in. Fighting our fear with the reality of who Jesus is. Then do we obey the last command, the second command, to keep on proclaiming? Are you proclaiming? Friends, when we know the precious promises, it compels us to take up the commands. We proclaim the word in season and out of season. In the encouragements and the discouragements. Who knows what God may do? Oftentimes he does more with the discouragements, doesn't he? When we know this hope deeply, we can't help but be launched to love our neighbor. So, how well do you know 
your neighbors? How well do you know those who may certainly belong to Jesus who have not yet believed? Do you know the God who's worthy of worship is the only answer to their longings? As we consider that, let us take up what Paul would later write to another church in another crazy city. That if God is for us, then who can be against us? Let me close this morning by reading, many of you know it, the prayer of St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, and Christ in every ear that hears me. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, how we need your precious promises. How we need you to work in our lives so that we may walk in obedience. God, we do not seek to obey you to make ourselves presentable. But we obey because you have given us the promise and the reality of eternal life. That you have redeemed us. God, I pray over those who are here who do not know that redemption. Those who have not walked in your ways, that have not been rescued. God, I pray and I ask even in this moment that you would do it. That you would usher them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that they may glorify you all their days. Would you do that here and would you do that in this city? Would you do that in the surrounding counties? Would you do that in our neighbors, our co-workers, our family and our friends? God, we believe, Jesus, we believe that you have many in this city. Would you give us eyes to see and hearts to know it, that we may see your promises fulfilled. We ask this in your name. Amen.